0: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I welcome Matt Mildenberger, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, to discuss his new book, Carbon Captured, How Business and Labor Control Climate Politics, published by MIT Press in 2020. Dr. Mildenberger's study of the United States, Norway, and Australia shows that the double representation of carbon polluters is the single most important feature of climate policy conflict, and I'm pleased to welcome him to the podcast today to talk about this terrific new book.
1: Thanks for having me, Susan.
0: So before we explore this new work, tell us a little bit about what led you to focus on climate change and this particular aspect of carbon policy And not just in the United States, but uh, in Australia and Norway as well.
1: Sure. Well, uh, as I'm sure uh, all the listeners of the podcast know, the climate crisis is a severe crisis. Um, It's one uh, posing an existential threat to societies around the world. Um, And it's a a challenge, a policy problem that we've known about for decades. Uh, But the political response has been really anemic in many countries uh, at most times. And so there's this underlying puzzle that I think political scientists have to to confront, which is, you know, how do we explain this gap between the severity of the climate threat and a very uneven set of political responses? At the same time, it's not that no country has done uh, nothing, to to use a slight double negative there. There are countries over the last 20, 30 years that have taken concrete action to, to try and address at least incrementally the climate threat but we, we don't actually have good theories in political science to explain why some countries have acted and others haven't um, and, and when some countries act and others don't. And this book is attempting to offer a, a new theory to explain this variation in the timing and content of climate policy across advanced economies and fill in a gap that really exists in our political science thinking about climate change. So, that we we can properly think about the political barriers to climate policy action. If you look at a lot of the popular debate and policymaking debate that exists around climate change, it tends to be dominated by economists um, and engineers. So, there's a lot of focus on the financial and economic barriers to action, and a lot of focus on the technological barriers to solving the climate challenge. Um, But political science also has a really important role to play in this debate. And and many of the barriers that are frustrating our collective efforts to manage the climate crisis are are fundamentally political. Um, And so this book is attempting to to carve out space to really examine those political barriers.
0: You mentioned that the policy response was anemic, but my own work uh, on the environment early in my career really told me that, political science was anemic. Uh, It took uh, and continues to be, it it took a long time for political scientists to even care. And I would venture to say that even looking at the APSA programs in the last few years, climate change is not and and other environmental degradation issues are are not actually the focus of political science. So I was wondering what, what you think of that. What do you think about the fact that the discipline of political science seems to be hesitant, and why, and how it is, if that's the case, maybe you disagree, but if it is the case, how is it that you got the tools, the training to write this kind of a book?
1: Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. Um, And uh, it's discouraging that the discipline hasn't engaged with environmental politics issues and climate politics issues in a more comprehensive way over the last 20, 30 years. Certainly, there has been um, quite a bit of focus in international relations, uh, looking at global climate negotiations, global environmental agreements, and that literature began building up uh, you know, during the 90s, and some really excellent work was done. And um, there's, of course, a, a community of scholars working broadly in, in what they self-define as global environmental governance, who extend that IR literature to uh, you know, a much more diverse set of actors um, and tend to use a more pluralist, uh, pluralistic set of methods. And there is a literature in American environmental policy that has focused on the policymaking process around environmental issues in the United States specifically and of course, there are um, specialists in various countries around the world studying the environment from their home country's perspective but the the discipline of comparative environmental politics that that subfield has really lagged um, and if you if you think about almost any other policy domain tax policy, welfare policy you know immigration policy these are all topics that not only have um, a real centrality in the discipline today but there are very mature debates that exist dozens of books reflecting on why there's variation in the timing and content of policies in those domains across countries and we're missing that um, in uh, environmental politics for the most part there's certainly been a, a flurry of research in the last few years that has begun to fill in that gap um, but in some ways this this Subfield is at least a decade or or even several decades behind a number of other contemporary policy challenges. Um, I have a folk belief about why this is the case. I don't know. Um,
0: no, I want to know, of course. I, I
1: don't know whether it's true or not. Um, but I do think that a lot of people who really cared about the environment and political science uh, got into studying the environment by focusing on global climate agreements. And, you know, going to a conference of parties every year to the annual climate negotiations. And that's a very discouraging experience for most people because the the pace of global climate action has been glacial to non-existent. And I think that as they saw less and less activity and progress being made at this global level, they became very fascinated by all of the other types of individuals and really interesting groups of political and social actors who also show up at these global climate conferences. And so you know a whole generation of scholars pivoted from studying you know, the hard-nosed climate agreements to thinking about cities, thinking about social actors, thinking about transnational environmental governance. But a lot of the critical players that shape climate outcomes at a national level, are not the type of actors who show up at the global climate conference every year. I'm thinking about business organizations, bureaucrats, labor unions. Uh, And so the, this domestic political economy of climate change, which in some ways has been the bread and butter perspective that scholars in other policy areas have used to think about uh, policy making, uh, got neglected in the environment space. And I think that it's only been in the last couple of years that those venues and that type of political conflict has really come into focus, particularly in comparative perspective.
0: And would you describe your training as crossing subfields in political science? Where where did you start? How were you trained? How would you characterize this book as, uh, how would you characterize this book within the field?
1: Yeah, so I, I think that, You know, this book is situated uh, at the intersection of environmental politics and comparative politics, comparative political economy. Um, It's, you know, deliberately trying to build a bridge between, uh, you know, research on uh, policymaking institutions, on political parties in comparative politics and engaging those literatures with a new empirical domain and, and, and the climate domain. And I think that there's really interesting things that, we can learn when we take some of these existing frameworks and apply them to an environmental case. It helps us see some of the limits and, and strengths of our existing theories. And of course, I also think that you know, core political science theory has an enormous amount to contribute to thinking about environmental problems in a structured way. My own training um, is fairly eclectic. I took a very meandering uh, route to, to get where I am today. I actually did a a college degree that was a double major in botany and international relations. So one foot in the sciences and one foot in the social sciences. Uh, I decided eventually to lean into the social science side of my work. Uh, But it was actually very difficult at the time to think about where to do your PhD. There are not a lot of PhD programs um, in the U.S. or or frankly anywhere in the world that have a, a concentrated specialty. In environmental politics, you know, there's one person and one faculty member in, in sort of one department here and one department there and uh, much fewer people in top departments. So I actually, I actually did my PhD at, at Yale, um, but in the School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, um, which is an interdisciplinary program that's offered uh, at Yale. And as part of that, I did all of my training and coursework and my comprehensives and my committee all was anchored in political science. And so I essentially trained as a political scientist, became a political scientist, but uh, I had to arbitrage that space by coming into the discipline through a, a non-political science sort of PhD program. That, that that's, means, go ahead. No, sorry.
0: Sorry. no, no, you go ahead.
1: I think, I think that's changing. Um, it, it's certainly the case now that I'm increasingly seeing students at, you know, top political science programs who are choosing to um, do research in climate and environmental issues. Um, I'm now a faculty member at UC Santa Barbara, um, which as a department has made an effort to specialize in the study of environmental politics. So we have um, across campus, eight full-time faculty, tenure track faculty, who exclusively work on environmental politics, which I, I think is the largest number anywhere in the world. Uh, and we're you know very deliberately attempting to build and and support research and student mentorship and training around this issue um, but you know comparable places where environmental politics has really been a focus of political science research are are quite few and even at top political science programs I think that uh, graduate students have at times been discouraged from uh, from making political science or making environmental politics and climate politics the, the centerpiece of their dissertation projects. And and I, that's changing. And there's a lot of, I think, really exciting uh, opportunities and book series and training opportunities that, that now exist. And I expect that in five years, the discipline is going to look very different when it comes to its attention to climate change. Um, but historically... I think that political scientists uh, allowed a number of other disciplines, from sociology to economics to engineering to to make statements and conclusions about politics when when political scientists had something more important and unique to offer.
0: No, thanks, and I think it actually draws together what you said about your own training. I think that in part, there's some fear of the science that's involved in talking about climate science even if you don't need to be a scientist, but perhaps having the botany training, perhaps coming out of school forestry, it makes you able to do the political science with without fear that you might have to um, think a little bit about chemistry or um, uh, atmospheric science. Um, you mentioned existing theories, and, and before we get to how you want to refocus our attention let's just talk a little bit about the the theories that are on the table for climate policy inaction and action um starting with collective action, and just talk a little bit about what political scientists and others have said and 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 what the limitations are, which is is how your project um takes off,
1: yeah, so. When we, we scan political science and economics work to think about how, how can we make sense of both variation that exists in climate policy action, as well as what are the explanations for the systemic climate policy inaction that we see across almost every country. There are certainly a couple of frameworks that, that scholars lean into um one is a collective action perspective um you know climate change is conceived of as a collective action problem it's a problem that no country can solve itself and every country has an incentive to free ride off the um, you know climate policy making of other countries you would prefer as a country in this framework to to be the only country that doesn't take action So that you can enjoy all the benefits of a stable climate without any of the costs associated uh, in terms of domestic economic costs that are associated with taking climate policy action. That perspective um, is is a helpful way of thinking about why we see insufficient action across the entire world It's a little bit less able to explain why we should still see variation between countries in taking some action, because we do see meaningful unilateral action in some countries at some time periods that's somewhat inconsistent with this broader um, concern over free riding. And while those unilateral domestic actions are insufficient to manage the problem, right, they're collectively insufficient they still involve meaningful um, political and economic debate and costs at the domestic level. So something is happening that collective action theorists would view as being costly to national governments that isn't easily explained within the the simplest versions of collective action theory. I think that there's a a second um, perspective that's often discussed which thinks about collective action, or sorry, thinks about climate policy in action as being a function of either cognitive or emotional limitations. Um, So this is a a style of explanation suggesting that people don't believe climate change is happening and therefore they don't take action. Um, Political parties don't believe that climate change is happening and therefore they don't support policymaking to address the climate crisis. Um, I would say that political scientists have leaned less into the psychological theories of climate policy and action. Um, But certainly some of the the literature reviews that are out there do speak quite a bit to this barrier. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, Anthony Giddens published a book called The Politics of Climate Change a few years back. And, you know, he really emphasizes both this free riding collective action theory, as well as this psychological not believing in climate change theory. There's a third set of explanations, though, and and my book is very much situated in this third camp. And the third camp is, you know, builds from more bread and butter, comparative political economy, comparative politics literatures, and focuses on distributive conflict. It sees climate policy as generating new economic winners and new economic losers and explanations for policy action or inaction need to be very thoughtful about who wins and who loses and, and how, how those wins and losses sort of are managed within political fights. And I'd say that one of the dominant ways of thinking about distributive conflict in the literature has been thinking about climate change as a, a conflict between either the left and the right or between green industries and brown industries. Right, so there's a real sense that there are economic winners like clean energy, and there are um, economic losers like the coal industry. And as one gains the upper hand and grows in economic importance, then we're going to see more climate action. Um, and uh, if the brown industries maintain their sort of grip on the policymaking process, um, we're going to see inaction. And I would say that these explanations often focus on the you know the dominant role that fossil fuel companies, fossil fuel utilities, oil companies play in in blocking policy in many uh, parts of the world. So uh, one way of of thinking about these three different camps is that they all offer a plausible explanation for why we would see inaction. Um, But you you really need to start thinking about some of these within-country distributive conflicts before you can also begin getting some leverage on why we do see all the same variation in climate policy action. Um, Because going back to the early 90s, there are some countries that have acted unilaterally and have taken meaningful steps to reduce their their national carbon pollution, even if collectively all of those efforts have been just a drop in the bucket to to manage the climate crisis at the global level.
0: Well, should we start then with... uh cooperation and talk a little bit about how climate policy cooperation functioned in Norway?
1: Sure. So um, my book uh, approaches this question um, and uh, I guess advances a theory that is, is distributive institutional. So I'm, I'm focused on distributive conflict. And I want to understand how conflict over climate reforms plays out in different countries around the world. And I'm focused on both what the distribution of interests are. You know, What is the distribution of different actors and what are their preferences for climate policy? And then I want to also understand how do those preferences get translated into action? And that means you need to think really carefully about how institutions that exist in different countries package and translate and, and um, structure the expression of those political preferences. So the, the book sort of proceeds in two parts. Um, in one part, I think about what the distribution of preferences are for climate policy in different countries. And then in the second part, I, I think about how institutions structure the expression of those preferences. And that's where I get explanatory leverage to, to make sense of why we see these differences in the timing and content of climate reforms. Um, to, to, sit, to take a step back and just say a few empirical things first, so um, the book focuses on Norway, on Australia, and on the United States. Um, while my research is actually fairly methodologically eclectic, I do a lot of um, causal, quantitative causal inference work, for instance. Uh, the book itself is, is qualitative, um, rooted in sort of process tracing, um, it builds from, you know, over a hundred in-person interviews with policy elites and political elites in all three countries and uh, a real effort to understand what were the negotiating dynamics and policymaking dynamics inside the room as climate reforms were being debated. And the analysis spans from 1990, um, which was a moment in which uh, climate reforms really began to emerge onto the political agenda in many countries through to 2015. Um, which is when the Paris Climate Agreement um, was signed. And um, many of the your listeners probably know that the Paris Climate Agreement marked a, a fairly substantial change in the structure of global climate negotiations, in that prior to Paris, there were a set of repeated efforts to develop binding global frameworks to manage global carbon pollution, where each country would be essentially making commitments and binding commitments set jointly about how much carbon pollution they need to reduce. Uh, After Paris, we have a framework that is much more deferential to national circumstances, and countries are given a lot more latitude to self-define what type of carbon pollution efforts they are going to make to contribute to the global good. And this also means that understanding variation between countries in the content and, and substance of climate reforms uh, has become all the more important in trying to make sense of policy outcomes.
0: And, and Matto, before you go on, I just want to push in that of course um, I come at this not as a specialist and not from the kind of training that you do. The book is very clearly written and it is, it you don't need any sort of quantitative chops in order to understand the politics and the political, um, uh, outcomes that, that, that come from everything else that you have done behind the scenes. So I just want to say to listeners that, that this, this is a book that anybody can pick up and read from student to faculty and understand because of the great job that you do Matto, with, 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 with contextualizing for us, for putting, uh, Some, you know, what is recent history to some, and for students, farther history um, into perspective. So it's it's really done exceptionally well.
1: Well, that's great to hear. Um, And um, just uh, to maybe also to mention, from a methodological perspective, um, while we're we're talking about sort of the the data and the source work for the book. Um, there's been, as as you probably know, quite a bit of debate in political science recently about transparency um, and um, a big push to do more transparency in quantitative research. Um, I uh, was really interested in this book as a fully qualitative book to, to do my best to um, support transparency in my qualitative work. And so um, the book actually has a, a um, transparency appendix that's uh, hosted online as part of the, the Syracuse University's um, QDR, Qualitative Data Repository um, Program. And so a lot of my primary documents and a lot of the, the non-confidential source material is um, arranged and listed there, um, along with sort of a much more technical version of some of my um, methods and approach to to research for interested readers so i've I've tried to you know to build and and develop um, as much of this data out as possible in a very public and transparent way Mm. Um, but jumping back to your initial question um, to think a little bit about norway and cooperation and and how the the argument proceeds so um, you know i think there's a a motivating puzzle here with these three cases, um, and that's that with Norway, Australia, and the United States, we have three countries that have taken very different trajectories in how they've approached climate change policy making. Uh, Norway was one of the first countries in the world to pass domestic climate policy, um, it actually passes a carbon tax, um, second country in the world to pass a carbon tax in 1991. Um, and uh, you know, a carbon tax is a, a form of what we call carbon pricing. These are policies that try and make it more expensive for polluters to release carbon pollution into at the atmosphere with the idea that as you, if, if it's more expensive to pollute, you're going to reduce the amount of pollution that you release. Uh, so Norway passes a carbon tax three decades ago, essentially. Um, and since that time has undertaken very incremental reforms um, and policies that have overall tended to impose more costs on consumers and have tended to shield some producers, some businesses from direct costs. We have uh, the United States, which is almost the diametric opposite. right? The United States uh, doesn't act until arguably around 2010 or so with uh, executive action with, under the Obama administration. So it's a much later actor, but the actions it takes when it eventually acts have a more producer focus and are more conscious about shielding consumers from direct invisible costs. And Australia is a bit of an intermediary case where you also see late action. You know, Australia only um, passes a, a comprehensive climate reform package in 2011, though it later repeals that in 2014 probably the country in the world that has had the most active political conflict over climate policymaking. Uh, About four prime ministers and two opposition leaders in Australia have at one point or another lost power in part because of their climate policy commitments or absence of commitments. Um, But Australia ends up being this intermediary case of of a late actor, but the the substance of those policies is a bit more mixed with a, a mixture of producer and consumer costs. And the book is trying to make sense of this variation and and actually variation on a number of other dimensions as well. And so there's really two two steps in the argument that I build. And so the first is that really no matter what country we look at, whether in Australia, Norway, uh, in Canada, or in a series of shadow cases, sorry, the United States, or a a series of shadow cases that I then look at, Japan, Canada, the UK, uh, and Germany, there's actually a fairly stable and regular pattern of climate policy conflict. And this is what I call the logic of double representation. And I think that understanding this logic of double representation is one of the most important things we need to do to make sense of climate politics around the world. So climate change emerges as a, a major political issue in the late 80s, early 90s, but it emerges into a s- Set of political systems that, you know, at least in the global north, are already fairly mature. There's already economic and political cleavages that are fairly stable. But climate change generates a cross-cutting tension within these existing economic and political coalitions, right? Because there are businesses that have a a stake in carbon-intensive carbon-polluting industries. And there are businesses that have much less capital tied into these carbon and and pollution-intensive industries. But there's also workers whose jobs depend on these fossil fuel and carbon intensive industries. And there are workers whose jobs don't depend, who are in the clean energy sector or maybe in the service sector, um, in, in, in economic sectors that are agnostic or not too impacted by climate reforms. And so, what that means is that climate change and the scientific discovery of climate change exposes these latent cross cutting cleavages that exist on both the left and the right, right? So we suddenly have um, within capital um, tensions between pro-climate reform capital and anti-climate reform capital, and the same in labor, where we have sort of pro-reform unions and anti-reform unions based on their divergent material interests. And in turn, those cross-cutting divisions in capital and labor also are reflected in both the left and the right. So no matter what country we look at around the world, we always find very substantial groups of people on both the left and the right who are both opposed to and supportive of climate reforms. So climate policymaking has never really collapsed onto either a a left-right dimension or on a business-labor dimension. It's always been cross-cutting because it has essentially exposed these differences in the interests of otherwise aligned political and economic actors. And this cross-cutting nature of climate policy uh, is really foundational to making sense of, of patterns of climate policy conflict around the world. So we look at a country like Norway, at the United States, at, at Australia, at Germany, really any advanced economy. And beginning in the 90s, there's going to be people within the right and within business who are supportive of climate reforms. Chess as there's going to be some union actors and people on the left who are quite uh, opposed to any type of serious climate measures. Now, um, in most countries, this has privileged the interests of carbon polluters, right? Because no climate policy is the status quo. And there's always a, a fairly substantial status quo bias in most policymaking systems where it's much harder to pass a reform than it is to block that reform being repealed. Um, This is, you know, one way of thinking about this is that, you know, there's a certain number of veto points in many policymaking systems. And if if the opponents of climate reforms are being spread throughout the political system on the left and the right, in labor, in business groups, because of this double representation, it makes it very easy for them to have a veto, or at least a a slight veto, no matter if the left or the right is in power. let me give you an example of this from Norway um, to, to sort of make it really concrete. Um, it's also an interesting example because it, it troubles some of the ideas we might have about whether the left or the right are necessarily the most pro or anti-climate uh, ideologies. So the first country in the, sorry, the first country in the world where a democratically elected government loses power because of climate politics is actually Norway happens all the way back in 1999 when the incumbent government, which was a Christian democratic government um, supported by two other parties. So essentially a a centrist party or a center right party um, coalition. um, They get kicked out of office in 1999. And at the time they're attempting to block new carbon intensive electricity plants from being built. Um, these would have used gas and would have increased the amount of carbon pollution coming from Norway's electricity system overall. And they were attempting to block the building of these plants um, without a technology that's called carbon capture and sequestration or CCS technology. Um, this is the technology that at the point of releasing carbon pollution from uh A generating plant into the atmosphere, that carbon pollution gets captured and then sort of usually injected deep underground into a geological reservoir so that it doesn't enter into the atmosphere and become part of the active carbon that's circulating in our world. So, this centrist government was attempting to block the construction of these new gas fired power plants that would have increased Norway's carbon pollution without this new technology. And they were kicked out of office in a vote of no confidence by both the Norwegian left, the Labour Party, as well as the Norwegian right, the Conservative Party, in partnership with the Norwegian um, Labour Unions and Peak Business Associations. And that type of pattern of having joint left-right opposition to action is actually fairly frequent in many national contexts. So the book argues that it's not just about thinking about green industries versus brown industries. It's not just thinking about the left versus the right. If we want to think about how the interests of carbon polluters are being privileged politically, we need to think about this double representation, the way in which climate policy preferences are often cross-cutting, and therefore the interests of carbon polluters are embedded across the whole political and ideological spectrum and across a range of different economic actors. And that double representation really helps us make sense of why we see climate policy in action. Why do we have insufficient policy being passed over the last three decades across all countries? The next step is then to think about, well, why do we still see action? So if this is an explanation for policy in action, how can we make sense of the variation that still does exist in how and why some countries acted at some points in time? Right, So even in the presence of this double representation, we see this early action in Norway. We see this late action in Australia. So how can we then make sense of the variation that does exist in the policies that are passed? And here, I argue that we need to think about how these preferences interact with the policymaking institutions that exist in different countries. And if we think about the variation in policymaking institutions and political party institutions across advanced economies, then we can actually understand how um, sort of this double representation, this cross-cutting set of climate policy preferences, interacts with these institutions to explain the, the variation in outcomes that we see. And so there are really two types of institutions that my book pays specific attention to. So one is thinking about... Um, policymaking institutions. So in the sort of comparative politics literature, um, we've often focused on the difference between pluralist institutions and corporatist institutions. A pluralist institution, like in the United States, this is a policymaking system that has a lot of adversarial combat, where no single uh, group or interest group has sort of an institutional seat at the table. And so there's a lot more volatility and conflict over policymaking and policy decisions. And that can be contrasted with what we call a more corporatist system that we see in, for instance, Northern Europe, in places like Norway, where many major economic reforms are developed in a more collaborative, consensual way um, and Major economic actors, for instance, labor unions and business groups, have an institutional guaranteed seat at the policymaking table. And in fact, you know these corporatist policies are very much the backbone of the welfare state. For instance, in and some of the the generous social safety nets and you know a, a style of economic policymaking that has been viewed as more egalitarian and more conducive to a range of different social and economic policy outcomes by scholars in political science. Um, That hasn't, that doesn't work out the same way for climate. So, so climate change looks a bit differently and it looks a bit different because essentially there are two different ways that climate reforms can be passed. You could have a climate reform that's passed along a pathway where the polluters, the, the economic losers, have a seat at the policy design table. And if they have a seat at the policy design table, then they're going to make sure inside the room that the policy doesn't pose an existential threat to them. This is what's happened in many ways in Norway over 30 years. We've had early policies, but they've systematically shielded uh, carbon polluters from the, um, the costs of those policies. And this is because labor groups that are carbon-intensive and, and business groups that are carbon-intensive and their allies in the, the labor and conservative parties in Norway have always sort of had a seat at the table and have used that seat at the table to, to limit the ambition of climate policy reforms. And in the few moments, like in the, the late 90s and 1999, where the Christian Democrats attempt to pass more ambitious reforms those groups sort of coalesce and, and manage to block any effort to sort of push the envelope in, in climate terms.
0: So, so just to clarify, so with these causal pathways, in the first case, the one we're talking about now, uh, the polluters actually have a direct influence on climate policy design. They're in the room. Nevertheless, that does not mean that they get exactly what they want.
1: Well, it means that climate policy is going to happen because there's sort of a, uh, there's an effort to pass climate policies, but they're able to stop those policies from being extremely threatening. So for instance, we have um, process industries in Norway. These are sort of cement, fertilizer, steel, metal processing, metallurgical, like smelting, right? These are all carbon pollution Carbon polluting industries in Norway that have never faced any real costs associated with climate reforms for the last thirty years—they've been systematically exempted because they've been able to use their position inside the room to um, to block costly reforms. And actually, as a result, uh, many times in these settings, like in Norway, the result is actually a a um, that the costs get pushed onto consumers, right? So we have a carbon tax on consumer gas and consumer oil and consumer sources of pollution. And those consumers aren't inside the room. And and few of the interest groups in Norway have any incentive to, to mobilize conflict in the public domain because they're getting what they want inside the room. And so they don't need to mobilize conflict into the sort of public and political sphere. So you, you don't really have elections where climate change is politicized, because few of the interest groups have any incentive to politicize an issue where they're very effectively getting what they want inside the room. And we can think about this a little bit and, you know, one of the, the advantages that people have expressed around a corporatist or a, a welfare state system like in Northern Europe is that it, it's very good at providing, um, you know, stabilizing the status quo and providing a lot of economic security. For individuals and businesses. But when the, the fundamental sort of nature of the economy is too carbon intensive, when, when we need to reform the economy at a very basic level, it's very hard to do that in this more consensual collaborative way, right? The very collective action institutions that are so helpful in other policy domains end up being um, hurt, you know, end up being obstacles in a place like Norway because the the economic losers have a seat at the table and an implicit veto there. We can contrast this with a different pathway, a second pathway in more pluralist countries like the United States, where um, where carbon polluters don't have the same institutionally guaranteed access to policy design in the U.S. system. There are moments, as we see now in the Trump administration or in the George W. Bush administration, where coal and oil industries essentially controlled US policy. So at their best moments, they have a much stricter and, and a much sort of more complete control of the policymaking process. But that oscillates with moments, as under the Obama administration, where many of these carbon polluting industries and interest groups got comparatively shut out of the policymaking process. So you have a lot more variability in access to policy design, but that also increases the policy threat. And so what we see in the United States is that many interest groups have mobilized conflict into the public domain to try and undermine the electoral and political incentives associated with climate reforms. Uh, And and this has very effectively over many years um, stymied reforms uh, but in the in the few moments in which reforms have nonetheless passed through, they have been much more focused on imposing costs on producers and much more sensitive to consumer costs and the salience of consumer costs, because they are happening in a political system in which the uh, the costs of climate policy are being actively politicized by interest groups. Right. So suddenly we we can help explain then the variation between, for instance, Norway and the United States. In Norway, we have early action that's very incremental and shields producers but imposes costs on consumers. That's because you have this double representation of carbon polluters that's being institutionally reinforced, and that's giving them sort of guaranteed institutional voice within the policymaking sphere. And it means that they can block producer costs, they can... Push the costs onto consumers, and and because the policies don't have any real existential threat, they're going to pass the first time they're proposed. So policies get proposed in 1991, they pass immediately. In all these other countries, like the United States, that weren't early actors, there still were efforts to to pass and propose taxes and climate reforms during the same period. In fact. If we go around the world, we see synchronized waves of climate policy proposals in different countries. Virtually every advanced economy, for instance, considered a carbon tax actively, including the U.S., in some way or another, um, in the early 90s. Um, But in many of those countries where there was a much more adversarial pluralist system, um, the, the conflict and the politicization of climate change quickly killed those reform efforts. And so we see much later action in the u s because you need to cycle through a range of different climate policy making windows of opportunity before there's a political coalition that manages to to enact a policy in one of those windows of opportunity um, but even then when you look at what the the content of that policy is going to look like it's going to have um, you know be much more sensitive to consumer costs because the issue of climate change has become an active source of political conflict across the entire um, system. So the, the book then uh, builds from this and, and sort of develops a theory to explain this variation that exists in the timing and content of climate policies by paying attention to the different ways in which this double representation of carbon polluters gets institutionally reinforced or weakened by the party institutions and policymaking institutions that exist um, in each advanced economy.
0: Uh, so so Meadow, let me ask you a couple of questions about this. So um, it's what's what's helpful about the theory that you lay out is it accounts both for policy timing and also policy content. Um, and the causal pathways are, are nicely explained. N- Quite a ways back, you were talking about the pluralist system, where uh, so the second pathway, where the carbon polluters lack any sort of guaranteed influence on the policy as it's being developed, and you noted that um, in, you know in the Obama administration, nevertheless, p- policy was, was passed. But I, I'm and I know that your study is only looking at 1980 to 2015. But I was wondering if how optimistic you really are about that type of system producing climate uh, uh, adequate climate uh, policy, and are there some other examples besides that one with Obama between 1980 and 2015 that 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 would help contribute to your confidence about the possibility of the second model working?
1: Well, I should say that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm more pessimistic about both systems, right? So we, we tend to have this perception that Europe is inherently greener in its policymaking outcomes than um, than the United States or Australia. And, you know, you have cases like Norway and Germany that are lauded as being, you know, climate policymaking leaders. Um, and I think that my, my broader argument in the book is not that one system is better than the other, or that we should necessarily be optimistic about one and pessimistic about the other, but that these two different approaches to climate policymaking have their own strengths and own weaknesses, right? So incremental progress is really good, but can incremental progress ever generate the disruptive change necessary to um, reduce carbon pollution at the timescale that that scientists say is necessary, reduce carbon pollution in advanced economies by 90% by 2035? In the United States, we do see these moments in which there's much more ambitious, aggressive policymaking that gets proposed. And this is not just true in climate. You can see similar dynamics in um, other environmental policymaking uh, agendas and, and domains. Um, but is it durable? Or is there going to be this oscillation between high ambition, low ambition policies that ends in a, a world in which any you know, effective Action that the Obama administration takes just gets immediately repealed by a subsequent Republican president, um, as has occurred with Trump. Um, I do think that there are some broader implications, though, and that's that if we want to think about how to design climate policy, we need to think about the nature of the political conflict that exists in these countries. So, um, for instance, in Europe, eh, Within the constraints of this more corporatist style of policymaking, uh, subsidy-based policies have actually been the most disruptive and done the most good in pushing European economies towards a green future. This is because it's very, very difficult to impose costs on existing incumbent industries, but the collaborative, consensual nature of policymaking has created opportunities for really, really large, stable, long-term subsidy programs that have helped to, um, to create new industries. Um, and so rather than, than making it more expensive to pollute, um, it's been easier to make it less expensive to do cleaner things. Um, in the U S by contrast, it's much more hard to in this more pluralist context to, um, to sustain really long-term subsidy programs in this space because of the different incentives that opponents have to politicize uh, green spending. Um, but in fact, you probably have a, an easier time regulating and imposing direct costs on carbon polluters. Right. So I mentioned the Obama administration. The Obama administration used uh, statutory authority under the Clean Air Act, right, which was an early environmental law um, there was a major Supreme Court case in 2007, mass versus EPA, that read carbon pollution into the Clean Air Act. Um, and the Obama administration was able to use this new statutory authority to regulate carbon pollution um, throughout the, you know, the two terms um, that Obama was president. Um, Norway actually has had the same statutory authority since the mid 90s where, Carbon pollution was read into existing air pollution laws, um, but no government ever used that statutory authority. Uh, and it's rarely been sort of, it, it's remained this latent regulatory power that's been sort of set aside um, to focus on these more collaborative, cooperative efforts to do incremental change. And so, you know, I, I really think that we, we need to, there's not a one-size-fits-all policymaking approach. Um, but we need these types of theories of timing and content and the variation in timing and content of climate reforms so that we can understand how different countries should best approach um, doing their part to contribute to the climate crisis.
0: So, looking at where uh, we are since you finished writing this book, and particularly uh, since the United States is heading to an, into an election this November. And though the president might change, though some members of the Senate and the House may change, overall we have the system that we have. Based on what you learned and what we know about American voters and the extent to which they are willing to vote on the environment, and perhaps that's changing, And maybe you want to say something about that, what, what would it look like? I understand the broader implications are that you understanding how the policy works should make us more successful. So ha- how would you see it being applied um, in, in that, at least in that one case, since we don't have that much more time left?
1: Sure. Well, I, I think, uh, first of all, that um, there there is a real possibility that there'll be quite ambitious climate reforms passed. Um, if, for instance, there's a democratic uh, trifecta in 2021 um, I think that the importance of climate change within the democratic primary points to this issue, getting a degree of political attention that it hasn't ever gotten before. Um, I think that in the U S case, in fact, in, in many cases around the world, you know, my book really focuses on carbon pricing, right? So this effort to impose costs on carbon polluters, um, but In many ways, carbon pricing, as my book shows, is is not a very politically smart way to to do a climate reform package. It's an optimal policy from an economic perspective um, in that it's theoretically efficient. Uh, But it essentially takes this entire problem of climate change and reduces it to a single contentious focus which is what the tax or price should be on every unit of carbon pollution that we release in the atmosphere. In other words, it's foregrounding costs and quite salient consumer costs at that and backgrounding all the benefits, right? Which is having a stable climate and, you know, having a livable planet in 30 years. And so all of the political attention gets focused on this short-term cost. No political attention gets paid to the long-term benefits. And And that is a recipe for enhancing the political power of opponents, right? Opponents love um, debating short-term costs rather than thinking about the long-term benefits. Uh, What I think we're seeing in the U.S. right now um, with proposals like the Green New Deal is a recognition that there's a different way to design a climate reform package. One that puts benefits forward as the central plank rather than costs forward as a central plank and is willing to to let go of the most economically efficient policy sets to generate a package that has political benefits and that's easier to generate a political coalition in support of. Um, So, you know, because we should expect that, you know, double represented carbon polluters are going to um, engage quite aggressively against climate reforms. We see this right now with the oil industry and and actually some labor unions opposed to, for instance, climate reforms in the US today. We need to design policies that are going to be catered to consumers and really offer benefits to the public to ensure that the the entire policymaking process isn't tilted in favor of entrenched carbon-intensive incumbents. Um, so that's what I think. I think that a efforts to impose costs on carbon polluters, but doing that in a way, which is forward, foregrounding the benefits and providing, uh, you know, financial and social and economic benefits to consumers in the United States is the appropriate way to design a policy package that could take advantage of this upcoming window of opportunity. And this is a, a little bit, the logic behind proposals like the green new deal, um, but I, I expect that we're going to see something like this emerge in the next Congress, where we have a uh, a package that combines economic and climate policymaking um, together uh, to foreground those benefits and help make the costs less direct and more difficult for carbon polluters to make salient.
0: Uh, thanks so much, Mado. Uh, what is your what What is your next project? What are you working on now?
1: Um. So I have a, a few things that I'm working on right now. I have a, a lot of ongoing work where I look at public opinion uh, around climate change. And particularly, I'm interested in understanding how people's experience with climate change. Has that changed their political behavior? Right? Should we expect that as more and more people around the country uh, experience the impacts of climate change, is that going to scramble and, and reshape the politics of this issue? Um, I'm also doing quite a bit of work on climate policymaking in the post-Paris, post-2015 period. Um, And actually, a lot of this is is thinking about free riding as a barrier to climate policy action at local, national and global levels. Um, And uh, thinking quite a bit about how important is free riding actually as a a, um, political challenge. It's something that we assume to be a binding constraint on the progression of climate reforms around the world. But in fact, there's much weaker empirical evidence that that major political actors are very concerned with free riding as they um, undertake or design their climate reforms. And so I'm trying to rethink the importance of free riding um, in our climate politics and, and make sense of of how that uh, might shape the way we design global climate institutions.
0: Well, thanks so much for coming to share this book and uh, the new research sounds fascinating. The book is Carbon Captured, How Business and Labor Control Climate Politics by Matt o. Mildenberger, published by MIT Press in 2020. You can get it on the MIT website and we will have that uh, link up on our blog. Uh, you can get it online, the usual providers. And I'm encouraging people to try out bookshop.org, which will get you the book shipped to your house, but it will support the local brick and mortar uh, bookstores that are uh, struggling in the pandemic. So thanks again, Matto, and uh, good luck with this book and the next project.
1: Thanks so much. That's really fun being on. Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure.